It is May 28, 1972. 52-year-old Lily Gray offers her 13-year-old neighbor a ride as she heads out on a Southern California highway to meet her husband in Barstow. She's been having a few problems with her little six-month-old Ford Pinto, but it seems fine right now. After a stop for gas in San Bernardino, Gray settles into a 60-mile-per-hour cruise on the freeway. She sees congestion ahead and slows down, then changes lanes to avoid the traffic. Suddenly, her Pinto stalls out. She's powerless to do anything and just lets the car coast to a stop. She's stuck on the busy highway. The car behind her manages to swerve out of the way. But a 1962 full-size Ford Galaxy is barreling straight for her car. The driver of the Galaxy slams on the brakes, slowing to somewhere between 28 and 37 miles per hour. When it slams into the rear of the Pinto, the Pinto's flimsy bumper crumples, and the Pinto explodes in flames, engulfing the interior of the car. Gray dies in the fireball, and the boy is burned over most of his body. He is permanently disfigured. Ralph Nader's grim prediction has come to pass. An investigation reveals that the design of the Pinto, the placement of the gas tank, and the lack of reinforcement around it made this car vulnerable to exactly this kind of accident. Worse, court testimony shows that Ford knew about the defects but opted not to pay the $15.30 per car that it would have cost to make the car safer. Instead, Ford calculated that it would be cheaper to pay out lawsuits than correct the problems. The boy who survived and his family, they sue, and they're awarded $3.5 million in damages. And there are other claims about Ford Pintos bursting into flames after rear-end collisions. Lots of them. At the urging of federal regulators, Ford recalls Pintos. It becomes the largest auto recall ever at the time. In fact, there are more to come. In 1977, the big three automakers will recall more cars than they sell. 10.4 million passenger cars of various models and years. Car makers aren't just battling each other and the foreign competition. Now, they're grappling with the guts of their own creations. It will become an existential question. How do they hold on to once flag-waving buyers who have now become wary? The two biggest car brands in America, Ford and Chevrolet, face a cold truth. The road ahead is dangerous indeed. From Wondering, I'm David Brown, and this is Business Wars. In our final episode of Ford versus Chevrolet, we go from the fizzy 60s to the more sobering 1970s and the driver of today who wants a powerful and fuel-efficient car. Here are the cliff notes. The golden age of racing and muscle cars, all of that is in the rearview mirror. Now there's a whole new roadmap for American car makers 
and things are about to get even worse. Germany has staged a beachhead on American shores with a fuel-efficient competitor. Yeah, this cute Volkswagen Beetle with its funky bug-eyed look becomes cool, especially with its cheap price tag. By 1970, Ford and Chevrolet are in a new race. And this is the crazy part, it's all in reverse. They're working overtime to introduce smaller, less powerful, and more fuel-efficient mini-cars. Sure, they're cheap and ugly, and hell no, musicians aren't writing odes to these autos. The Ford Pinto and the Chevy Vega both sell for around two grand. This ain't no Mustang versus Camaro. The Pinto and Vega will go down as two of the least exciting vehicles ever produced by Ford and Chevrolet. And the big three have taught their foreign competitors where to reach American buyers. It's not the racetrack. Where can four starving interns find a car? Four starving interns can afford. You asked for it. The Toyota Corolla two-door sedan. Probably the most sensible car in the world. 49 Highway 36 City. And you get Toyota durability and reliability at an incredibly low sticker price. Toyota. It's just common sense. What becomes the biggest business story of the 1970s actually starts small. In California, drivers begin to see strange little cars they don't recognize tooling around. Honda Civics, Toyotas, and Mazdas. America's approaching a deep recession. When people see these cars, they're wondering, can I save myself a lot of money and aggravation if I buy one of these Japanese cars? And during the 1973 oil embargo, when the price of gasoline is skyrocketing, when people are becoming environmentally conscious for the first time, when the word smog is entering the American lexicon. Well, these little cute, fuel-efficient Japanese cars punch well above their weight. As customers do the calculus between sacrificing aesthetics for savings, they think, well, hell, maybe these Japanese cars aren't so ugly after all. So how is the largest car company in the world responding? Is GM working feverishly overtime to come up with a challenger? Not exactly. But in 1973, a GM executive named Pete Estes, who led Chevrolet for years and is now an executive VP, thinks the company should at least investigate the competition. He calls dashing David E. Davis, one of the most influential car journalists and advertising men of all time. David, I got something you should look into. Go overseas and check out the new front-wheel drive cars that are becoming popular elsewhere. Now, Davis is a force in automotive circles, and he's intrigued by this request. When he returns, he meets with Estes in Detroit. Estes is eager to hear what he thinks. Well, what'd you learn? Davis doesn't sugarcoat it. The front-wheel drive cars being produced abroad? I gotta tell you, they're better than our American cars. You guys better get prepared for a fight. Estes doesn't seem to get that there's been a seismic shift. Instead, he goes on to explain to Davis why GM will just sit tight. His words sum up everything that is wrong with American car makers in the early 1970s. When I was at Oldsmobile, there was something I learned that I've never forgotten. There was an old guy there who was an engineer, and he'd been at GM a long time. And he gave me some advice. He told me, whatever you do, don't let GM do it first. 
Now, what does this mean? It means that the top men at GM believe they're too big to fail, that Americans are going to buy Chevrolets no matter what. But it turns out, refusing to innovate is a big mistake. Nimble Japanese cars are coming up fast on the passing lane, overtaking lumbering American cars. Millions of buyers buck the patriotic call to consumers and do what had once been unthinkable. They buy Japanese. By 1974, the Toyota Corolla gets a boost from American consumers, becoming the best-selling car in the world. Around this same time, Lee Iacocca, now president of Ford Motor Company, reporting to the chief executive Henry Ford II, pays a social visit to car builder and all-around motoring icon Carroll Shelby. There's something the Texan wants to get off his chest. You know, Lee, I've been given a lot of thought to buying a Toyota dealership myself. You know, there's, there's one for sale in Houston. Now that is heresy for a Ford man. But Iacocca just laughs it off. Let me give you the best advice you'll ever get. Don't take it. Why not? Because we're going to kick their asses back to the Pacific Ocean. Shelby shoves his hands in his pockets and stares off into the distance. He turns down the deal. Wow, will he regret that. In 1976, the Japanese invasion gains momentum. Thanks to the nifty little Civic, Honda races past Volkswagen to take the third spot among auto imports in the U.S. Numbers one and two, that would be Toyota and Datsun. How are they becoming so successful so fast? Well, for one, Japanese car companies do not function under the huge burden of employee health care and pension obligations that Ford and Chevrolet face. Their production process improves the workflow and eliminates waste, allowing them to sell cars cheaper while making a bigger profit on each car. Chevrolet executives respond the only way they know how. It's a familiar trope. America, what's your favorite sport? Baseball. Sandwich. Taco. Pie. Apple. And what's your favorite car, America? Chevrolet. Let me see, that's baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and Chevrolet, huh? Right. That's right. Buy America. Chevrolet is still number one in the U.S., but by 1976, Chevy's market share is nosediving. All the mechanical problems are plaguing buyers. In 1978, the number of auto recalls by U.S. car makers surpass cars sold. This is a disaster. That year, the nation's top car executives converge on the Windy City to attend the Chicago Auto Show. The huge McCormick Convention Hall is filled with shiny cars and nifty exhibits, but the gloom here is palpable. When a New York Times reporter asks GM's president, Thomas Murphy, about the current state of the industry, there's a hint of a glum confessional in his response. You know what? It may be that we were late in recognizing just how unhappy people were with our combined performance. Maybe we were so caught up in the daily competition for business that we might have gotten out of touch with what customers wanted. And they're thinking about the environment. They're thinking about gasoline prices. Now those are humbling words from the president of the world's largest car company. But the company's answer to the rise of Japanese and European imports is shocking. In 1980, 
Chevy releases its first front-wheel drive car, the Citation. It's the first new model for this new decade and an answer to the foreign invasion. The first Chevy of the 80s. It's a Chevy like no Chevy you have ever seen. It's a thoroughly contemporary driving machine. Not only is the Citation homely, it's plagued with mechanical problems. One test driver gives a head-shaking review. After about 4,000 miles, the underhood bulb fell out. Four hubcaps got lost, and the alternator belt tore up. Finally, the alternator gave up the ghost. The emergency brake cable disconnected. What a mess. But wait, there's more. The sound deadening and the door panels peeled off, and the body panels did too. Now, the interior space is pretty good, but somewhat spartan. There's no trip odometer. Bad visibility to the rear makes parking hard. The turning radius is terrible. The Citation would come to be known as one of the worst cars ever produced. At Ford World Headquarters, there are also big problems, for different reasons. It's July 13, 1978, and board members are gathering in a conference room. One look at the faces of the Ford brothers, Billy and Henry Ford II, and it's clear something bad is about to go down. And it doesn't take long either. Henry Ford II looks at the board members and delivers an unequivocal ultimatum. It's him or me. Henry II is talking about Lee Iacocca, the president of Ford. This is a standoff that's been brewing for years. Ever since the Mustang changed the course of the company in 1964, Henry Ford II has been growing suspicious of Iacocca. Henry Ford II has often invoked the phrase, My name is on the building. Well, it seems that Iacocca has been forgetting this. Oh, and the way he wears his fancy suits, his growing power, his fame, it's all so annoying to Henry Ford II. The disaster of the Ford Pinto certainly does not help Iacocca's cause. When Iacocca is brought into the boardroom, he knows what has just happened and demands answers. He wants to know why he is being fired. What has he done wrong? Ford steps up to answer. You know, Lee, I just don't like you. Iacocca points out that the company will clear $1.8 billion in 1978. You'll never do it again. Henry Ford II's brother, Bill, is in tears. As Iacocca walks out, Bill Ford says, I'm sorry, Lee. I'm sorry. As for Iacocca, well, he's somewhat relieved. In fact, he tells friends, thank God all the bullshit's over. News of the firing shocks the business world, but it would turn out to be a boon for Iacocca because a few months later, he takes over a failing Chrysler Corporation and leads Chrysler from the brink of extinction back to profitability. After all that drama, Henry Ford II retires a year later, just as Japanese car makers are making the future of American cars look ominous. Unions are also creating dust-ups. Philip Caldwell is named to run Ford Motor Company, the first non-Ford family member at the top. Ford has earned a big profit in 1978, but prospects for 1979 aren't so good. In fact, 
they're downright scary. On October the 1st, 1979, Henry Ford II meets with Caldwell, the day that Caldwell officially takes over. As the two ride down on the elevator at the glass house, Ford World Headquarters, Henry levels with his new man. I'm really sorry about leaving you with all these problems. It's an awful time, and it doesn't seem fair to dump this on someone else. Caldwell doesn't take it personally. Well, you've been through it all yourself, I guess. Yes, I suppose so. But it was different then. I mean, even at its worst, in 1946, we could sell everything we made. But you don't have the market with you anymore. It's changed on us. At the dawn of the 1980s, a darkness falls upon Detroit. What was, at the time of World War II, the greatest manufacturing center in the world, is now a sprawl of slums and shuttering factories. In Flint, Michigan, where General Motors was founded, the company begins closing factories and laying off thousands of workers. The city has miles of boarded up houses and businesses, and money has become so tight that the city's cut down on garbage collection. In the very town that once prided itself as the home city of the world's largest corporation, rats now outnumber humans. It is September of 1987. A who's who of the auto industry is filing into pews at Detroit's Cathedral Church of St. Paul to honor the life of Henry Ford II. Hank the Deuce has died of pneumonia, and his funeral is being held in the same church where the first Henry Ford was eulogized 40 years earlier. It is a sad day, but there is something to celebrate. It seems that Henry II has used his last breath to blow life into the corporation he embodied for so long, and that last breath is just what it takes to push Ford past Chevrolet. The best-selling car in America in 1987? Well, that would be the school-marmish Ford Escort. The best-selling truck in America? The testosterone-fueled Ford F-150. The most popular vehicle of any kind? The Ford F-150 pickup. For the first time in 30 years, Ford has beaten Chevrolet to be number one in the U.S. For only the second time since 1926, Ford's profits, a record $4.63 billion, beat General Motors. The celebration would not last long. It is October 1995. Crowds are filing into the Nippon Convention Center in Tokyo for the 31st Tokyo Motor Show. The theme is called Dream the Dream, a car with that feel. There on display is a new, odd-looking Toyota with a funny name. How do you pronounce it? Prius. Yes, this is the new concept Toyota Prius, and it requires some explaining. The word Prius in Latin means prior to or original, and this car is original indeed. It has two motors, a battery-powered motor and a small gas engine that can drive the wheels and also recharge the battery. The result? It gets over 40 miles per gallon on the highway. That's twice the mileage of a new Ford Explorer. 
When the Toyota Prius first arrives in U.S. showrooms in 2000, it moves like a slow burn, getting hotter and hotter until it becomes a sales phenomenon. How do Ford and GM react? Funny thing, Ford discovers that American tastes are changing. Maybe it has something to do with the excesses of the dot-com era, but for some reason, lots of Americans want big again. They want space for the kids and all that stuff they're hauling from Costco. Through its Lincoln brand, Ford introduces the first luxury SUV, the Navigator. It does so well, GM counters with the plush Cadillac Escalade. People are buying big houses, and they want an Escalade or a Navigator in the driveway. On top of that, General Motors can barely keep up with orders for an SUV called the Hummer, a virtual monster truck for the masses adapted from an oversized military troop transport vehicle. American is cool again. As Chrysler scores with its gangster-styled full-size 300, Chevy's building a new Camaro redesigned to emulate its original muscle car of the 60s. And in 2005, the CEO of Ford... Henry's great-grandson Bill, is touting the throwback design of the V8-powered Ford Mustang. At the 2005 Detroit Auto Show, he motors onto a stage in an all-new model pony car, jumping out and flashing a broad smile as he's nearly blinded by the clique lights. He announces, Well, as most of you have heard me say many times, if I only had one car to drive for the rest of my life, it would be a Mustang. Americans are getting particular about what they want in a vehicle. At the same time as the Prius is picking up steam, Ford and Chevrolet are unveiling cars that are virtual copies of the powerful Fords and Chevys of the 60s. On top of that, Ford and Chevy are selling millions of oversized SUVs and pickup trucks. But by July of that same year, well, it hardly matters. Now we're sitting down 870. The industrial average dropped more than 900 points. Fear came back into the market in a very big market way. It didn't work. It broke down. The machines broke down. When Americans survey the damage of the 2008 meltdown, they burn with anger. 401ks are evaporating. Wall Streeters are panicking. The federal government has taken over mortgage giants Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Lehman Brothers has filed for bankruptcy. And GM is looking for a life raft. In Washington, D.C., General Motors CEO Rick Wagoner settles into a chair in front of congressional committee members who stare at him with bitter contempt. GM's top brass has arrived in a private jet to ask for a bailout of at least $11 billion. Pennsylvania Democrat Paul Kanjorski is getting frustrated with Wagoner's ducking and weaving. Maybe, maybe I'm denser, Mr. Wagner. I don't quite understand what the hell you just told me. Can't you just tell me in absolute terms, how much money do you need to survive, General Motors, from today until March 30th? Uh, Congressman, it's going to depend on what happens with suppliers and markets. I, I understand yeah. it. Give me your worst-case scenario. The worst-case scenario, the amount of money would be significant. I mean, we have, we have supplier... What is significant? Next on the hot seat is Ford CEO Alan Mulally. To underscore how bloated Detroit has become, Mulally is asked if he would cut his seven-figure salary down to $1 until the situation okay. gets ironed out. Mr. Mulally, are you willing to go down to the dollar? I understand the intent, but uh, I think where we are is okay. And the answer is no? Uh, I think I'm okay where I am. 
Ultimately, the Obama administration authorizes nearly $80 billion to GM and Chrysler and other auto-related companies. Ford is the only one of the big three that doesn't really need a loan. How? Well, it turns out that just before the financial meltdown, Ford did something radical. Three years earlier, fearing Ford's position would suffer should the economy go south, the company borrowed $23.6 billion, a move that, at the time, was sharply criticized by shareholders. As banks began to fail in 2008 and GM and Chrysler were forced to go hat-in-hand to the federal government, Ford was well-positioned to ride out the storm. In fact, Ford's move made its chief, CEO Mullally, look almost clairvoyant. All of the big three wound up weathering the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. But new competition was arriving. Not from Japan or Germany. The new competition is homespun from Silicon Valley. We have come to the fork in the road. And as Yogi Berra would have instructed, we're going to take it. It is a spring day in 2014. On a California highway, a white Lexus SUV is motoring along through the traffic. Some people do a double-take. Not because it's sexy, but because of the awkwardly spinning radar system mounted on its roof. What the hell is this? Yes, this is a Google self-driving car. So there are a few things that have to happen before the car can safely drive itself. First, it has to figure out its location in the world. So we use GPS, but GPS isn't always that accurate which is why we rely on our other sensors, like the laser, which picks up on details in the environment that help us identify our more precise location. So think of the sensors as the car's eyes and ears, but with eyes that can see far off into the distance and 360 degrees around the car. In 2014, this seems revolutionary, <laughs> terrifying even. But statistically, these cars are safer than human-driven cars because computers are always paying attention. They're not fiddling with a radio or trying to settle kids' squabbles in the back seat. Computer reaction times are faster, more reliable, and always sober. For the first time since those exciting days when Henry Ford was building his first car, automotive engineers are truly reinventing the wheel. The possibilities are astounding. There are not only self-driving cars, but powerful electric and hydrogen-powered vehicles that can cruise hundreds of miles on a single charge with zero emissions. And people are falling for these sleek, new, self-driving electric cars. We've left the era of odd-looking EVs that only a tree-hugger could love. Nowadays, there is Tesla envy. This California-built outfit is the most successful new car company in decades, although questions persist about its solvency and its ability to deliver on the orders. Ford is now doing something its founders never imagined. It's repositioning itself as a technology company as well as an auto company. Ford is planning to unveil its self-driving car in 2021, but its emphasis will not only be on mass manufacturing, but on service delivery partnerships. Anything that requires delivery, Ford is betting that its self-driving cars can do all this for you. Pizza delivery? An autonomous Ford car is on its way. Want to go to the movies? An autonomous Ford will come pick you up. Not only will cars no longer need human drivers, you won't even have to own a car in the first place. 
In fact, Ford recently announced it will stop building once popular sedans like the Fusion and Focus in North America so that it can hone in on its new high-tech future. It's not about to give up the coveted Mustang, and it will still make profit-rich trucks. Well, earlier this year, General Motors announced that in 2019, that's just one year from now, the company will offer a Chevrolet Cruze AV to consumers. This is an autonomous car that has no steering wheel or driver pedals. Chevy will create fleets of them to serve as personal and ride-sharing vehicles. GM's Orion assembly plant in Michigan is currently the world's first factory gearing up to mass-produce a self-driving car. Meanwhile, GM's first-ever female CEO, Mary Barra, has taken one of these vehicles for a spin. Or perhaps we should say the other way around. Uh, but I've ridden in the cars in uh, San Francisco, and it's, it's really quite astonishing to see what these cars are able to do. And we're seeing progress on a, you know, almost a weekly basis. But in its ads, Chevy continues to pitch itself as the maker of the great American motor car, hawking full-sized old-school sedans like the Impala and rental car staples like the Malibu. And of course, there's Chevy's fire-breathing Camaro. The duel with Ford's Mustang continues. One wonders if Chevy and Ford aren't hedging their bets just a bit. After all, none of us know where all this will wind up. Right now, GM and its flagship Chevy remain number one in the U.S., closely followed by Ford with Toyota right behind. Nonetheless, you can't help but sense there's a big change coming to the American highway. Have you noticed? Teens don't like to drive as much as they once did. Cruising is a thing of the past. The romance of the road just doesn't seem to have as much pull as it used to. Yet there are still car enthusiasts out there who will tell you that American cars have never been as plush or as powerful as they are today. A fork in the road indeed. We only have a glimmer of what the next revolution in cars will look and feel like, but we can say this much. It won't be just car companies doing the innovating, but customers driving the change as we all try to adapt to the realities of the new high-tech highway. Hey, Wondery is launching a new show about business, and we need your help. The show is called Raising the Bar, from hosts Ali Webb and Michael Landau, the brother and sister team who founded the company Drybar. It's a show for entrepreneurs or for anyone who wants to know about business and how to have a life while building a company. Drybar started with just one little store. Now it has over a hundred across the country. Now, if you're a budding entrepreneur yourself or in the thick of starting a business and you have a question for Allie and Michael, send them an email, rtb at wondery.com. That's RTB for raising the bar. Who knows? They may even have you on the show. Again, that email address, rtb at wondery.com. And make sure you check out Raising the Bar when it premieres on July 25th. I hope you enjoyed your time with us today. Subscribe now to Business Wars on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR, Spotify, Wondery.com, or wherever you listen to this show. You'll find a link on the episode notes. Simply tap or swipe over the cover art. You'll also see some offers from our sponsors. Please support our show by supporting them. If you like what you're hearing, well, we would love it if you could give us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe, too. Another way you can support us is to answer a short survey at wondery.com survey. 
And listen, a quick note about the conversations that you hear on Business Wars. In most cases, there's just no way of knowing exactly what was said, but those scenes are based on our best research. I'm your host, David Brown. A.J. Bame wrote this story. Karen Lowe is our senior producer and editor. We're produced by Jenny Lauer. Sound designed by Bay Area Sound. Our executive producer is Marshall Louie. Business Wars was created by Hernan Lopez for Wondering.